You're listening to Law Talking, an independent podcast brought to you by Greenway Chambers. In this episode, Ian Roberts and Frank Hicks look at recent High Court and New South Wales Court of Appeal decisions on varied topics such as Clive Palmer, academic freedom, casual workers, vaccination orders, and repudiation and causation in damages claims. Leah Reid joins Frank to discuss vaccination issues in the context of family law and the many questions that can arise involving children and parenting. Lastly, we revisit a seminar that was delivered earlier this year on how to plead a claim for breach of the statutory duty under Section 37 of the Design Building Practitioners Act 2020 following the decision in Strata Plan 87060 and LOLAC Developments. My name's Frank Hicks and I'm joined by Ian Roberts. G'day Robbo, how are you? Well, thanks Frank, how are you going? Good, good. It's been a little while since our last podcast. There's been a few decisions handed down of of some significant note, uh, not least of which seeing Clive Palmer go down again in the High Court where they rejected his application that he was being discriminated against on the grounds that he was a Queenslander, um, amongst other things. Well, uh, there's anything wrong with that, of course. Not the, what, the discrimination or the point that he was trying to take? No, that he's a Queenslander. <laughs> there was also another decision involving Queensland, this time uh, Professor Ridd and James Cook University, where the High Court gave some significant consideration to the question of freedom of speech, academic freedom, and the operation of codes of conduct and dealings with each other uh, in an academic context. Did you see anything of that one, Ian? I had a quick look at it. I think that the, I mean, it's got some significant things to say about the right to free speech and so on. Uh, I thought that the mineralogy uh, decision, the Clive Palmer one, was most significant because as far as I can tell, he's now on a hat trick. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, he's been dismissed uh, each time hit wicket. He's <laughs> <laughs> up there with Harris. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Although I think Palmer's more likely to be back than Harris at this stage. Yes, there, right. there was also a decision of interest to our colleagues in the industrial and employment area of Workpack and Rosato dealing with the definition of a casual employee and when a person is or is not a casual employee, and in particular where there is or is not a firm advance commitment from the employer in respect of their work. But there were some other decisions. Obviously, COVID dominates, as it always does, and Justice Beach-Jones handed down a decision rejecting the applications made by various persons against the restrictions that have been put in place by Minister Hazard. And very recently, the New South Wales Court of Appeal upheld the decision of Justice Beach-Jones in a very considered and intensive decision assessing the administrative law and the various instruments involved with a fairly impressive bench of Justices Bell, Ma and Leeming. Did you have a chance to have a look at that one at all, Ian? Yeah, I've got to say the uh, both Justice Leeming and Justice Ma, who agreed with what um, the President said, each of them, Justice Ma at 138 and Justice Leeming at 139, were complimentary of the trial judge's work in the detailed reasons and the um, comprehensive judgment that he gave in a pretty fast turnaround. But I've got to say, the Court of Appeals judgment is not exactly a Reader's Digest treatment of the issues either. Uh, The President's gone into pretty impressive detail and a rapid turnaround in what 
on one view, it's a fairly complex case. Well, it's certainly complex. And as, as you say, the president certainly spent a great deal of time thoroughly examining the issues and undertaking a close quarter analysis of the instruments and the various principles involved. And uh, it is um, not perhaps light summer reading, but certainly very impressive reading and a decision which all practitioners should examine, if only for the intellectual heft with which the president attends the issues, if nothing else. Well, it's also worthwhile looking at Justice Leeming's treatment of the issue about leave too, from 140 onwards. It's not a money case, but a right in that case to the um, attacking the freedom of, of movement and so on. But Justice Leeming referred to the decision of client and New South Wales Bar Association as another example of where the right sought to be enforced was not susceptible of valuation and, and the need for leave to appeal, which I think they didn't get or, or argued that they didn't need on appeal, but that was rejected. Yes, and there are numerous grounds on which the leave to appeal was not granted, although there was leave granted with respect to the proper construction of Section 7 of the Public Health Act as a matter of ongoing public importance, particularly given that the order remained in force and the COVID-19 pandemic continues to pose a risk to public health. But it certainly, as I say, was a very impressive decision having regard to what I've called the intellectual heft that each of the judges really brought to bear on the consideration of the issues. Do you know if there's an appeal pending in the other related case that Justice Adamson dealt with? Uh, I'm not sure about that, I've got to say. I did see there were some interesting observations made by Her Honour with respect to the crowdfunding, which had seemed to go into the um, plaintiff's lawyers' coffers for the purposes of those proceedings. And I think yeah. I suggested at one stage that it may very well be necessary for the lawyers or indeed the plaintiffs to disgorge those funds or at least part of those funds that had been raised. I'm not sure if they used a GoFundMe page or some other platform to secure funding, but uh, it certainly seemed that the, they'd raised a lot of money and um, uh, the cost sorters were not going to be equivalent to or available to cover off those uh, funds as raised. Well, I think it already came up because of the strategic decision to apply for an order that there be no cost order, having regard to the public importance of the matter, which was rejected. But had they kept their head down below the parapet and just copped an order for costs as they followed the event, then perhaps those comments wouldn't have ever seen a light of day. Well, maybe the cost issue will go on appeal. (laughs) They might (laughs) see to... uh... To agitate that a little bit further, but uh, it was certainly an interesting epilogue to, to that decision. Um, but whether or not uh, they would seek to appeal Justice Adamson's decision in light of what the uh, Court of Appeal has uh, affirmed uh, arising from the decision of Kasim and Hazard by Justice Beach Jones at first instance uh, is somewhat doubtful, I would have thought. Yeah. But look, more in the space that you and I probably more commonly practice, there have been a a couple of decisions of the Court of Appeal recently, particularly with respect to the question of repudiation and termination and causation and damages that flow. The first one, at least in time, was one of Carter and Mehmet, spelled M-E-H-M-E-T, medium neutral citation, square brackets, 2021, 
NSWCA286. Now, this was a decision with respect to a uh, conveyancing agreement, but you've had a look at it, Ian. What does it tell us about the question of repudiation and the rights and entitlements of parties? Yeah, well, as you said, Frank, this is an issue that comes up quite a bit in our area, and so often people uh, or lawyers are asked whether or not one party or another should terminate a contract, and it's a difficult question. It sometimes involves uh, significant consequences, and so everyone has to tread carefully when you have to deal with that type of issue. This case was interesting. As you say, it was a conveyancing case, but one of the issues, and there were a number of them, but it was referred to as issue three, was whether or not uh, one party had repudiated by insisting that the other party settle on the basis that the other party pay some interest, default interest. And the court found that that requirement or that the notice to, to complete in those terms was invalid. But what's interesting in this case is that the court said that both parties were, were wrong about their understanding of the contract. And by insisting on settling coupled with the payment of interest, which is a, a right that was not uh, had, had not accrued, the party insisting on that was not repudiating because they were proceeding on the basis of an indirect but reasonable understanding of their rights under the contract. Now, that may or may not arise too often in our area in building cases, Frank, because, you know, there's normally when this type of issue arises, a battle of solicitors who send letters backwards and forwards asserting rights and so on, because the Court of Appeal said in Carter that... Um, the other party had not corrected the view, incorrect as it was, so that the party insisting on settlement could consider whether or not it should insist on settlement with the payment of the interest. So they said that, um, I'll just bring up the paragraph, that... Um, it starts at about... 156, one, I think. Yeah, one, well, I had 154 where the court characterised the communications between the parties as having overlooked the effect of a particular condition. At 155, they said that at no point did the communications set out above, which is what you were referring to, did the purchasers dispute the correctness of the vendor's interpretation of special condition eight of the contract. Now, that's probably less likely to occur in our area. It's probably likely that if a party asserts a particular construction of the contract giving rise to an entitlement to terminate or, or that, that um, amounts to repudiation, the other party will contest that. So query whether that is going to happen all that often. But it's interesting that referring to DTR nominees in the High Court, that say that there are cases where a party, by insisting on an incorrect interpretation of the contract, doesn't evince an intention not to perform the contract if they believe it to be a correct interpretation or construction of the contract. In DTR nominees, the High Court also referred to uh, there was a belief, uh, although erroneous, the position had been taken was correct, uh, and they were therefore willing to perform the contract according to its tenor, which is an yeah. interesting observation. But then in a rather, rather grand language, went on to say, that the person may be willing to recognise their heresy once the true doctrine is enunciated <laughs> or may be willing to accept an authority of exposition of the correct interpretation. So it goes to your point, Ian, that uh, where someone is asserting that the contract requires or 
involve X. If they're not corrected in that position, you can't later say that the assertion that the contract required X was a repudiation, at least uh, if you've not done anything to disabuse that person of the notion that X is not consistent with the contract. And obviously, you'd also need to establish that X was one of those fundamental terms or intermediate terms of such significance that breach itself evinced an intention not to be bound by the terms of the contract. Yeah, but it's probably, I mean, I, I don't want to encourage solicitors to write nasty letters to one another, even more so than sometimes they do, but probably means that where a party is insisting on a right and it's it's based on an incorrect understanding of the contract, you need to make sure you say so, not just sit mute and uh, allow things to wash over you, only to come back later and complain that it wasn't, in fact, based on a correct construction of the contract. I think they need to, you need to try and correct their view or correct the heresy to adopt the, the high courts. Well, and that's obviously probably most prevalent in the context of show cause notices under yeah. building contracts, where if you, a builder was to, or an owner was to receive a show cause notice asserting that the contract required X and X had not been done and therefore they needed to show cause why a termination shouldn't occur or the work shouldn't be taken out of their hands. If you wish to take the point that, I don't have to do X because that's not what the contract means, um, then you, you should do so in, the, in your response to the show cause notice. Otherwise, it may very well be found that um, acting on that show cause notice was reasonable, even if uh, mistaken. Yeah, I think that's right. You said there were two cases. Another case came down yesterday from the Court of Appeal called, I think it's pronounced Lyca, maybe not, but it's L-I-C-H-A-A against Boutros, B-O-U-T-R-O-S which is square bracket 2021, square bracket New South Wales Court of Appeal 322. And it's well, it's also dealing with repudiations, which was also issue three, just like in Carter, maybe this pattern emerging, but it was issue three in that case. And it's, it's look, on one level, a fairly standard building dispute where there are defects, there's a, an allegation that the builder hasn't, performed the works correctly and and uh, uh, an alleged repudiation. The repudiation arose in that case from a confrontation between the owner or the owner's representative and the builder where the judgment records that the builder was threatened to have been thrown off the scaffolding, but that wasn't necessary for the repudiation. The owner's solicitor wrote and said, you're not going to be entitled to come back onto the site. And the Court of Appeal, Justice Rain, uh, who wrote the judgment for the court, said that was sufficient for Her Honour. This is an appeal from Judge Olson in the District Court. It was sufficient for Her Honour to have found that the owner had repudiated. So on that view, it was a fairly standard sort of case. But it's a good case to remind everyone of, of what's needed to prove the case in those circumstances. Because having found that the owner had repudiated, the court said that the owner was entitled to damages up until the the date of the termination of the contract, but because of the repudiation, not thereafter. Um, and so often in these cases, the evidence is presented in uh, expert reports in a all-encompassing list of defects with a, a price behind it or beside every one and a, a big total at the bottom, but not a lot of thought is put into whether or not the particular defects uh, such that the right to the damages accrued prior to the date of termination. 
because the expert goes on after the event, produces a list and just costs everything. And one of the problems in this case seemed to arose that it was uh, because it was all those claims of defective work were all jumbled up and Iran had some difficulty disentangling it for the purposes of the judgment, which is one of the problems that the Court of Appeal dealt with. So that's one thing that needs to be kept in mind. You know, you, you need to present the evidence in a way so that the court can determine that up until the date of termination, if that's the limit to the plaintiff's right, damages in the sum of X had been suffered and so the, the loss can be calculated on that basis. A couple of other comments that the court made that probably worthwhile remembering too. One is the method of or the methodology of the calculation of the loss uh, in Belgrove and Eldridge, which, as you know, is, is the amount of money that's required to bring the works into conformity subject to it being reasonable and necessary. And as often is the case, a defendant says, well, look, you don't need the gold taps. We can fix the defects much more inexpensively. And His Honour said that Belgrove does not mean that the damages are based on the cheapest method of rectification possible. The other thing was that in this case, there were defects and then a termination and then a new builder came on and carried out work. Part of the loss related to the demolition of the works that had been undertaken by the second builder. And his honour said that if the rectification of the defects that had been built into the works by the first builder as a loss that had accrued at the date of termination required the demolition of the works that had been constructed by the second builder subsequently, that's still a loss that's attributable to the rectification of the first builder's defects it being accrued prior to termination. So unless there's a failure to mitigate issue, then that is, he said, a natural consequence of the defective works that had been already incorporated into the building. I suppose there's always an interesting factual question that arises with any assessment of damages, and that's why no two cases are the same, although sometimes we've got to say it feels that way. But, uh, you know, if there was a, a willful covering over of what was clearly and obviously defective work, yeah, there might be an argument about whether or not at least that expenditure or the cost of removing that work which covered over the defect would, would be recoverable. I can certainly understand a situation where the defect was not known or couldn't be observed by a layperson or even a builder himself or herself. There would be a, a natural consequence, but uh, I can also envisage a scenario where the conclusion could be reached that it was the folly of individual the builder who proceeded to cover over obviously defective work, which was actually the cause of the loss or the cost arising from the removal and redoing of that work to get to the defect. I think what you said at the outset is the answer to that. Every case turns on its own facts. In this case, when you say willfully covered up work, not with a view to willfully hiding the work, but as a consequence, willfully carrying out work, which had the effect of hiding, as all works behind walls and underground and so on, hiding that work. So in this case, for example, there was an issue about whether the change from the designed steel beams to a timber beam was a defect. And that's been referred, I think, back to the district court for determination. If that is a defect and the rectification of that defect requires all of the work of the second builder to be demolished in order to get the timber beams out and replace them with a steel beam. That's the natural consequence I think he was, his honour was referring to. 
it's not so much a willful concealment in a fraudulent sort of way, but the defect may not become apparent because until the building's completed and it starts to move around and sway in the wind because the steel structure has been replaced with a lightweight timber structure, for example. Sure. That's the type of situation that His Honour was referring to. I can certainly see that and I understand where His Honour's coming from. When I suppose, when I was talking about covering up or willful, I didn't mean in a sort of concealment sense, more a, a reckless sense. So that, you know, if you could see something was bent when it should be straight and you, you just ignored it and covered over it, yeah, um, sure. then you might, you might find it difficult to say that I want the cost of removing what I've, the, the coverings to get to this bent element that um, needs to be straight. Yeah, well, and it's probably a question of degree too, but in some of those circumstances, you probably need to plead a failure to mitigate. Frank, there's one other important judgment that we need to mention, and that's the decision in LFI Ventures, Proprietary Limited and Carter, and that's uh, the medium neutral citation is 2021 FCA 1555. That's a significant judgment. And the reason why it is a significant judgment is, as far as I know, represents the first decision of our good friend and former floor colleague, Justice Scott Goodman, who was recently appointed to the federal court. It's good to see that um, he's opened his account and uh, with a well-compiled decision about leave to amend an originating process. So uh, we wish Justice Goodman all the best for his life on the bench. I'm sure he'll do well. Yes, of course, Ian. That was a momentous decision of His Honour Justice Goodman in LFI Ventures and Carter, one of many. And as we were talking about intellectual heft earlier, I'm sure that His Honour Justice Goodman will be bringing the equivalent heft to the work on the federal court. And we're all looking forward to seeing many reasoned and unappellable judgments being delivered by him. Well, Ian, thank you very much for that. That's a nice little roll through the recent decisions uh, of the various courts. Thanks for looking at those decisions for us and giving us your analysis and uh, all the very best of the season. And you too, uh, Frank, and everyone listening, that uh, everyone hope everyone has a um, relaxing break and comes back uh, firing on all cylinders in the new year. Well, I'm imagining people lying on beaches listening to us talk about various uh, cases, Ian, and really they should be doing something more um, <laughs> relaxing than that. Well, I'm going for an 800-kilometre bike ride, so that's right. going to be as relaxing as um, I can imagine. Excellent. So, yep. Well, good luck with that, and we'll, um, we'll see you in the new year. Champion. Thanks, mate. Catch Bye. you. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Welcome to another episode and chapter in the Greenway Law Talking Podcast. I'm joined today by Leah Reid. Hi, Leah. How are you? Well, thanks, Frank. How are you? I'm very well. And we're talking about a very topical matter, vaccination and family law. Obviously, we're all very much aware of the need for vaccination in the time of COVID-19 pandemic. And um, this has obviously given rise to numerous issues in uh, general society, in commerce, and in the law. Now, Leah is a specialist in family law, amongst other things, and she's been looking at this particular area and is has produced a paper which is going to be available on our Greenway Chambers website. But Leah, can I just ask, by way of introduction, uh, 
family law and vaccination, where does it really start for you? I think it starts with parental responsibility. So when you're going to the family law courts, which have now got the great merge name of the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia, um, your parties are generally seeking parenting orders. And one of the parenting orders that they can seek is in relation to parental responsibility. So parental responsibility means all the duties, powers, responsibilities and authority, which by law parents have in relation to children. Parents have parental responsibility until the, like, their kid turns 18. And usually a parent can consent to most medical procedures for their child because they've got parental responsibility. There are some medical procedures that fall outside that scope and we can touch on that in a second. But generally, um, parents can make decisions about vaccinating their children and it's only when there's a dispute that it ends up before the family law courts. So what are the sort of procedures that would fall outside the scope of parental authority or responsibility? Well, some of the examples that have come up over the years include the proposed sterilisation of an intellectually disabled girl. That was a decision that the court had to make rather than the parents. There is actually in the new rules, the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia family law rules, they talk about what, what used to be known as medical procedure applications. And it has this rather unusual definition of an application that's authorising a major medical procedure for a child that is not for the purpose of treating a bodily malfunction or disease. So one of the interesting examples back in 1997, a case about a child and whether or not they should have their bone marrow cells harvested for a transplant for the child's aunt that was a medical procedure that was not for actually treating anything to do with the child. And so various things had to happen. So there isn't, there's a question about whether or not vaccination actually falls under a medical procedure. There's an argument to say, well, vaccination is about preventing bodily malfunction or disease, not about treating it. So on the one hand, it could easily fall within that definition. On the other hand, though, a medical procedure application actually requires the application to be served on the local child welfare authority, so the Department of Community Services and Justice um, in New South Wales. And I suspect that docs, as they used to be known, don't want to be receiving <laughs> lots of cases about vaccination. No, I can imagine not. Uh, and you mentioned that parental responsibility uh, exists up to the age of 18. Now, there's obviously a vast difference in terms of the capacity and agency between, say, a, a five-year-old and a 17-year-old. Um, is there any measure or, or standard by which uh, parental responsibility reduces or diminishes having regard to the age and capacity of the child? Definitely. So there's this concept of what's called Gillick competence. And Gillick competence is essentially about a child's ability to make decisions for themselves. It's a case that derives from England in the 1980s and it was followed here in Australia in 1992. It hasn't come up in any of the vaccination cases so far, but it does come up in the gender dysphoria cases where there's children that are looking to transition from one gender to another and whether or not they understand the impact of that. I see. Now, Obviously, vaccination pertains to many maladies or diseases uh, which beset our species 
uh, not just COVID-19. So there must be some history of cases dealing with vaccinations in other contexts and for other diseases that the family court has had to deal with. Definitely. And overwhelmingly, the cases seem to be in the last decade. There are cases going back to about 2002 on this particular point, but there are some similarities between the cases that I've found. So first of all, it seems to be usually mothers resisting vaccination, and they're usually seeking injunctive orders against the father vaccinating the children. The fathers, in contrast, are usually seeking orders that they either have sole parental responsibility in relation to vaccinating the children, or they're seeking specific orders that the children be vaccinated in accordance with the Australian schedule, or they're seeking specific orders that the children be vaccinated against certain diseases and receive certain vaccinations. So it might be that they want the child to receive the HPV vaccine or the mumps, measles, rubella vaccine. And the other thing is it seems that the objections have similar themes as well. So some parents are objecting to vaccination due to belief. For example, a belief that aluminium as an adjuvant is a neurotoxin. There's secondly, a belief that homeopathic alternatives are preferable to traditional immunization. So some of the cases, the parents say that they want their child to be given this homeopathic style vaccination. Or the other type of concern which comes up more frequently is that one of the parents thinks that their particular child will have an adverse reaction or is susceptible to an adverse reaction. And usually the evidence that the parent gives for that is that the child has some kind of allergy or that they have an autoimmune disorder or that the parent themselves has an autoimmune disorder and is concerned that there would be a genetic susceptibility. So those seem to be the three main uh, objections. I see. And having regard to those general categories of objection and the nature of the application, albeit one that might be somewhat different in light of the uh, new rules under which the uh, Family and Federal Circuit Court operates, how do the courts deal with disputes over whether to vaccinate a child or not? Well, they start with the fact that it's a parenting dispute and in parenting proceedings, the best interests of the child are the paramount consideration. So when determining what what is in the child's best interest, the court's required to consider the factors set out in section 60cc. And in fact, one of those factors that seems to have particular weight in the vaccination cases is whether it would be preferable to make an order that's least likely to lead to the institution of further proceedings. Often, I think courts are concerned that if they only make a order about the child receiving one type of vaccination, that the parents will be back in court quite quickly about other types of vaccinations that the child might need to receive throughout their childhood or into adolescence. So again, in parenting proceedings, there's actually rules about trying to keep things as informal as possible. For example, the expert opinion rule doesn't apply in parenting proceedings but it seems that a lot of the cases involving vaccination do involve doctors of various different types giving what would be expert evidence and again generally it seems that the court does consider the deponent's expertise and experience when determining how much weight to give to that person's opinion so in the cases that have sort of gone in the last decade, 
the parent that didn't want to vaccinate the child seemed to be relying on people that usually are GPs or that have no medical qualifications, but they have PhDs in homeoprophylaxis. They seem to be general practitioners who lecture on immune disorders or children's immune disorders, whereas the parent that's seeking to vaccinate the child are usually relying on paediatric clinical immunologists with um, specialist postgraduate qualifications. The ones that I've seen over and over again are doctors that have worked in hospitals involving children for 20 plus years and are very experienced in immunology. Yes, well, I can certainly see where the court would be assisted by expert evidence of all kinds in the context of these quite vexed debates. Now, can you perhaps just run us through some of the recent cases uh, that have addressed the question of vaccination? Definitely. There's already been one this year, not in relation to the COVID vaccine, and that's not surprising because the other similarity with these cases is that the children seem to be quite young, usually under the age of 12. And as we record this, there is no COVID vaccine available for children under 12. Although it seems that the Pfizer COVID vaccine may be, end up being approved by the TGA for next year and ready to roll out next year. So the case that's gone on this year involved two children aged 12 and 8. The mother was initially seeking injunctive orders to prevent the father from vaccinating the kids. The father was seeking sole parental responsibility in relation to vaccination. And again, the mother was strongly opposed to immunisation since the children had been born. She was concerned, this is one of the allergy type cases, she was concerned that um, the older child had an egg allergy and a dust allergy. She was concerned that she had a thyroid condition and that, that would mean that the children would be susceptible to an adverse reaction. But she also held the view that all of the diseases that vaccines are there to help prevent are treatable. And so her view was on a risk benefit analysis that it would be riskier to vaccinate the children and less risky to see if they contracted the disease and if they contracted the disease, for example, measles, that in her view, that could be treated. The court didn't agree. No. And in fact, the court hasn't agreed with anti-vaccination parents, if I can frame it that way, other than in two cases that I could find. And in those two cases, generally the court said, whoever had sole parental responsibility or whoever had parental responsibility should be making the decision or that they couldn't take judicial notice of the benefits and risks of vaccination. So in those two cases, there was no expert evidence. There seemed to be very little in the way of argument. The other similarity I should say is that a lot of these cases, the litigants are self-represented and that makes it difficult, I think, for the court to properly assess the evidence because it's often in a fairly inadmissible form. Parents like to annex um, research to their affidavit. And in this 2021 case, which is Mackinnon and Taup, that's exactly what the mother did, that she was annexing literature, very dense literature to her affidavit. And the judge, unlike in other cases where the judges just decide that it's in inadmissible form and they're not gonna read it, 
The judge in this case did actually read all that literature, but concluded that the mother had misread it in one way, that she already had her own beliefs and views about vaccination and she was looking to reinforce it with this literature, but the literature was ambivalent at best and not necessarily saying what she believed. And can I ask, just in terms of the process itself, in any of these vaccination cases, has the the child himself or herself actually been represented or is it simply a contest between each of the parents? In many of the vaccination cases, the court has the benefit of an independent children's lawyer. And in my experience, usually the solicitors that are independent children's lawyers tend to brief. So there will at least be one counsel at the hearing. But a little funny known fact and um, not well known, not well used, is uh, there's a section of the Family Law Act which actually allows the child themselves to seek a parenting order. So it's not inconceivable that a child might come to the court asking to be vaccinated. Although from a practical point of view, I think children tend to be looking for the path of least resistance and they may just decide to go to the doctor themselves and ask to get vaccinated rather than going through the court system. I can understand that. Certainly that gets the problem dealt with in an immediate and final way rather than worrying about lawyers. Well, Leah, look, that's been a fascinating review of the issue of vaccinations, which is, as we said at the outset, quite topical. And um, with the new Omicron strain of COVID-19, it seems this is going to remain a topical issue into the new year and for the foreseeable future. Thanks for having me, Frank. Thank you. Bye. Hello, uh, this is Frank Hicks and I'm joined by Declan Byrne and Fahim Anwar to discuss a recent decision of the New South Wales Supreme Court concerning the Design Building Practitioners Act. Declan, how are you? G'day, Frank. Very well. And Fahim, how's things? Very good, thanks, Frank. Now, some of you might remember that Declan, Fahim and I presented a seminar in June of this year concerning the Design Building Practitioners Act 2020, a part of which concerned the question as to how one pleads a claim pursuant to the statutory duty introduced by Section 37 of that Act. Uh, if anyone's interested in the paper, it's on the Greenway website still and is available for download. But His Honour Justice Stevenson has had occasion to look at this issue in a recent decision of the owners of Strata Plan 87060 and LOLAC, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, L-O-U-L-A-C-H Developments, PDY Limited, the medium neutral citation being square brackets 2021 N square brackets NSWSC 1068. Now, Declan, can you just introduce the case for us and tell us a little bit about it? Sure. I mean, it's the pretty classic case of an owner's corp uh, against a builder on a, in a defect sense. And so the existing claim as alleged by the owner's corp was based on breach of the statutory warranties under the Home Building Act. After the new act came in last year, there was an application before the court to amend the owner's corporation's claim to include allegations for breach of the Section 37 of the Design and Building Practitioners Act. And in the form of pleading that was proposed 
the uh, duty of care was set out. Um, and I think the important part is that in alleging breach of the statutory duty, that is under the Design and Building Practitioners Act, there was just a cross-reference in the particulars back to the same particulars that were used for breach of the Home Building Act warranties. So that is to say there was just a list of the expert evidence that the owners corp relied upon to say there'd been a breach of the Home Building Act warranties. So His Honour Justice Stevenson, as Frank said, had a few things to say about whether that was sufficient. I mean, His Honour ultimately found that it wasn't, and we can go through the uh, we can go through the reasons why. Yes, I think the key allegation that uh, was made by the plaintiff was the following assertion: by reason of the defective construction work referred to in the particulars to paragraph sixteen above, and those particulars, as you say, identified certain expert reports. It's then asserted the second defendant breached the duty, that is to say the Section 37 statutory duty, and caused the plaintiff loss and damage referred to in paragraph 19. Now, Fahim, in advancing the contention that that was sufficient, um, can you tell us a little bit about what was put for the plaintiff? Yeah, so the essentially the position put forward by the plaintiff was, was that um, the mere fact that there were defects in the building ipso facto showed that there was a breach of the duty of care by the builder. Um, And although it's not entirely clear from um, the pleadings themselves, um, that was the position that was advanced at the oral hearing. And this becomes clear if you look at paragraph 21 and 22 of the judgment. And needless to say, Uh, His Honour, in no uncertain terms, in paragraph 23 concluded, he did not agree with that position. Um, And what's quite useful about this judgment is that it goes through a couple of examples to show what is the shortcoming of the approach taken by the plaintiff. And it's very useful for practitioners because um, it almost provides a step-by-step guidelines as to the sorts of things that practitioners should be asking when it comes to um, pleading these sorts of allegations. Yes, I think that uh, it was put for the plaintiff that they weren't actually relying upon the principle or process of raise ipsa loquitur, which is something that we covered in our uh, paper in June of this year. But as his Honour stated in paragraph 22 of the decision that the submissions for the plaintiff uh, effectively were that the mere fact that there was a defect in the building, which was shown to constitute a breach of the Home Building Act statutory warranties, established that the defect was the result of a breach by the builder of the statutory duty of care. And as you say, Fahim, the His Honour went through um, examples dealing with items that were in the Scott schedule and identified certain questions, or at least unstated questions, which may go to the uh, alleged breach. Uh, For example, it was alleged that the aluminium composite panels facade cladding was a defect, and that that the fact of the installation of the particular ACP was a breach of the statutory duty. But then in paragraph 28, His Honour asked a series of questions which rhetorically, I should say, which concern what exactly is the nature of the alleged breach? Is it that the 
builder failed to read the architectural plans or failed to follow the architectural plans. The builder inappropriately selected a location where the cladding was to be installed. The manner in which the cladding was installed was uh, not acceptable. Um, the builder had duty to choose cladding other than that specified by the architect or the builder had failed to ask questions or indeed something else. So he, his honour was really identifying that it is essential when alleging a breach to actually identify what it is that is said to have been the breach. Um, that's, as you read it, I take it, Declan? Oh, indeed it is. Uh, I mean, I think he goes on later, I think it's paragraph 36, to say that you know, the Act was intended to, to overcome issues with the common law as to the existence of the duty following uh, the High Court's decision in Brookfield Multiplex and Woolcock, but not intended as a shortcut to prove breach of that duty. And he's referred to in paragraph 37 to some of the comments that were made in the second reading speech. The Act does not give you permission to avoid proving breach. Quite the opposite. In particular, um, and he goes on to say by reference to Section 5B of the Civil Liability Act and some of the case law from the, I think it's the medical negligence cases, that really for, for each defect, what you need to be doing is identifying the precautions that each of the defendants should have taken in relation to a risk occurring and essentially the consequences if those precautions weren't taken. And so that's going to require a lot more detail than I think what parties would traditionally plead, at least in relation to breach of the Home Building Act statutory warranties. So I think that's going to be important going forward. Yes, and for him, I think, uh, as Declan's pointed out, the interplay between the Design Building Practitioners Act and the Civil Liability Act in the context of a claim in negligence has to be fully appreciated by practitioners in this area and indeed articulated in any form of claim that's being advanced. Absolutely. And sort of as we had kind of foreshadowed in our presentation, I think it is just very important um, that when pleading a cause of action under the Design Building Practitioners Act, that um, practitioners think about Section 5B, 5C, 5D, 5E and so on of the Civil Liability Act. And his honour's reasons in this case really emphasises that point. Absolutely. And indeed, part of the matters that we articulated in the paper concerning what needs to be pleaded focused on Section 5, capital D of the Civil Liability Act and the stipulations with respect to the determination of negligence being factual causation. That is to say, the negligence was a necessary condition of the occurrence of the harm and also the scope of liability, and that is that it is appropriate for the scope of the negligent person's liability to extend to the harm so caused. So leaving aside the lessons that can be drawn quite clearly from His Honour's reasons, what does it mean for practitioners in this area in terms of uh, preparatory work associated with the making of a claim? Declan, does it mean more upfront, more upfront investigations and factual? I think that's right. I think I think unlike with a Home Building Act claim where you might have some ability to defer going into the detail until your expert evidence is on, I think this case makes it clear that you, really your expert evidence, or at least a draft of it's going to need to be done before kickoff because you're simply not going to be able to have that level of detail without it. I mean, unless you're unless you're blessed with a very diligent builder or consultant as a client who's able to descend into that level of detail. 
I think it's going to be very difficult to plead in that manner without your expert evidence having been completed. And for him, are there any other things that need yeah. to be done? I mean, for example, I mean, a lot of owners' corporations come in to well come into existence after the works have been completed and may not actually know much about the process by which their residential development came to be designed and constructed. That's right. I think, firstly, the uh, I mean, I agree wholeheartedly with. Um, Declan, that the more upfront work will need to be done, but it's also important to note that the questions that the experts are asked are likely to be slightly different in relation to a Design Building Practitioners Act cause of action. And really, thoughts need to be given about um, what evidence is available, as you say, about proving what happened um, in terms of who did the work, you know, what records are available to prove what work was done by whom. And generally, a lot more forensic work will need to be done up front um, to prove factual contentions, not just merely expert stuff. When this act first came, um, there was at least a perception among some that this provides a panacea which um, sort of solves a lot of the problems that owners corporations are having um, but as this case highlights while it may have solved a problem in terms of um, not having a duty of care it gives rise to a whole new set of problems that owners corporations will need to grapple with i think that's right and i also think that practitioners are going to have to be very careful and, and be quite clear in their instructions to experts because uh, in my experience, many experts simply identify the fact or existence of a non-conformance with the BCA or a particular standard and thereby conclude that the work is defective and identify what's required to bring it into conformance or to rectify. This will require experts, many of whom already do this, but some don't, to actually go an extra step and identify well, exactly why is it non-conforming? Is it the question of the materials selected? Is it a question of construction error? Is it a question of inadequate design? Is it a question of one or more of those things combined? And it will necessitate experts not just identifying the non-conformance, but identifying at least in some respects the reason or cause of that non-conformance so that the uh, liability can be fixed uh, if indeed there has been a breach of the statutory duty. Well, Declan and Fahim, thank you very much for revisiting this um, extremely interesting topic, at least for those of us who practice in this particular area. And uh, doubtless it'll provide uh, some further basis for an update to our paper and an expansion on the whole area. So thank you very much for joining me, Declan. Thanks, Frank. And thanks, thanks to you as well, Fahim. Thanks, Frank. Thank you for listening to Law Talking. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and are not representative of Greenway Chambers. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts and if you enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review? You can also listen to Law Talking on Spotify, your favourite podcast app or our website. Be sure to visit greenway.com.au to access the show notes and for more information on today's speakers.